Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The Trump administration's tougher stance on illegal immigration has put a spotlight on Customs and Border Protection officers, and it's a job more people are getting interested in. We're seeing an increase of trainees coming here because they want to do Customs and Border Protection work, because CBP is hiring. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. This week, we'll look at how CBP officers are trained, how they police our borders, and the issues some civil rights advocates are raising. We'll also consider what students, school districts, and states are doing to stop gun violence. Crime is down here, homicides are down here, violent crime is down here more than it is anywhere else in the country in the last four years. And how to strike a balance between the region's history and its current cultural vibrancy. We have to continually propel forward. I think also we run a risk of being, you always run a risk of being saddled with your history, I think. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankowski. Students and teachers around New England took part in a national school walkout this past Wednesday. At Mahar Regional School in Orange, Massachusetts, almost the entire school exited the building and stood outside for 17 minutes one for each victim in the Parkland, Florida school shooting. Mahar senior Cole Emery told the crowd that after the Parkland shooting, he barely heard any of his classmates talk about it as though they accepted this is the way it's going to be. We're ages 12 to 18. We're just starting our lives. We are just starting to take the world from the generations above us. If you do not want gun violence tragedies to be your status quo, then don't let them be. And I hope by taking a moment today in memory of those we have lost, we plant a seed of thought in your head. In Boston, hundreds of medical students, faculty and staff rallied at Boston University Medical School. Among the speakers addressing the crowd was Dr. Eileen Costello, who's the chief of ambulatory pediatrics at Boston Medical Center. Why should any citizen have access to automatic weapons whose only use is to cause human death on a broad scale? We must stand with these students. The speakers there called on Congress to fund research into gun violence, something that current federal law limits. The physicians say they're not waiting for Congress, though. They've created a private nonprofit to fund this type of research. States, it seems, aren't waiting for Congress either. A month after that school shooting in Florida, that state's Republican-led legislature and Republican governor passed tougher gun control laws, modeled in part on those adopted by Connecticut following shootings at the state lottery headquarters 20 years ago and at Sandy Hook Elementary School five years ago. As WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, with little hope of federal action, gun control advocates are pushing other states to adopt Connecticut's reforms. School safety and the shootings in Parkland, Florida, were the focus of a recent discussion at the Silver Lane Elementary School in East Hartford, Connecticut. The small group included Governor Daniel Malloy, teachers and parents like Nicole Nathaniel. A lot of kids are worrying. It kind of throws off their focus in the classroom. They should be focusing on their schoolwork, but they're wondering who's going to come through the building. 
As a parent, Nicole Nathaniel understands that worry. Back in 2012, about an hour south of here, Adam Lanza shot his way into the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, killing 21st graders and six educators. Since then, there have been more than 200 school shootings across the country, including the one in Parkland, Florida, last month. I think we've really reached a tipping point. I think Parkland struck a chord or a nerve. This is Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Connecticut Democrat who joined the discussion in East Hartford. And the students who are in the streets and and state capitals are demanding that we do better. The time for action based on the Connecticut model is now. The Connecticut model is a series of gun measures that are among the toughest in the country, signed into law following Sandy Hook, after people like Poe Murray of Newtown demanded action. I did not lose a child, but the shooter was my neighbor. And I have uh, four children that attended the Sandy Hook Elementary School. Murray heads the Newtown Action Alliance, which advocates for stricter gun laws. After the Sandy Hook shooting, advocates like her wanted Congress to take action, just like the students from Parkland, Florida, are demanding now. But in the wake of the nation's worst school shooting, Washington did nothing. We were completely heartbroken and um, distraught and very angry that they did not honor with action after the tragedy here. More importantly, though, what we did was we watched other mass shootings occurring over and over and again. But where Congress failed to act, Connecticut did. State lawmakers expanded an assault weapons ban and outlawed high-capacity magazines. They required background checks for the sale of all firearms, tightened gun ownership regulations, and increased funding for mental health and school security. Governor Daniel Malloy pushed hard for the measures, signed them into law, and says they're working. Crime is down here. Homicides are down here. Violent crime is down here more than it is anywhere else in the country in the last four years. Malloy says Florida lawmakers should have passed similar laws after the 2016 attack on the Pulse nightclub in Orlando when a gunman slaughtered 49 people. If Florida had done, after the Orlando shooting, what Connecticut had done, The Parkland shooting couldn't have taken place. There's no way to know that for sure. But it is true that the Florida killer bought his AR-15-style rifle, which is banned in Connecticut, legally from a Florida gun shop. According to the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, states with the strictest gun laws, like Connecticut, California, and Massachusetts, have the lowest rates of gun deaths. While states with the least restrictive laws, like Alaska, Alabama, Oklahoma, and Louisiana, have the highest. Governor Malloy says the lesson from Connecticut is that fewer guns lead to less violence. Another is that it's possible to oppose the NRA and win. NRA is very powerful, and I think it was a big thing in allowing the legislature to realize that they could stand up to the pressure of the NRA, they could pass meaningful legislative changes, and uh, we got it done. I think what Connecticut did was go about it from the wrong approach. Scott Wilson is among those who say Connecticut went too far and is trampling on Second Amendment rights. Wilson heads the Connecticut Citizens Defense League, which challenged the state's gun laws in federal court and lost. But he says a better way to make schools safer is to make them more secure and give teachers the means to defend themselves. We do know that the killer in Sandy Hook shot his way into the school. And the first person that encountered Adam Lanza was the principal of the school, and she was you know, summarily executed on the spot. And it would have been helpful if this uh, person, Adam Lanza, had been met with proportionate response to put an end to his threat to the, the children in that school. 
Wilson argues we protect banks and state capitals with guns. Why not schools? I think that would be a fair solution as opposed to stripping and, and eradicating our constitutional rights little by little. Back at the Silver Lane Elementary School in East Hartford, Governor Malloy says he wants to spend more on making schools safer, but he opposes arming teachers. Everybody here agrees with that, including the teachers, the parents, and Senator Richard Blumenthal. The Connecticut model of school safety is a national model for how we can make schools safer without weaponizing our educators. Since Sandy Hook, more than two dozen states have passed or introduced laws to loosen some of their gun laws, not strengthen them. It remains to be seen if the shootings in Parkland, Florida, will reverse that trend. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Anthony Brooks. As we just heard, Connecticut has spent over $50 million helping schools beef up their security since 2013. Some of that money has gone to private schools. But as Connecticut Public Radio's David DeRoche reports, private schools are getting reimbursed at a higher rate than many public ones. And LaMonica's children were attending a private Catholic school in Manchester a few years ago when a suspicious person sent their school into lockdown. There was a delay in the notification And I know parents were very concerned about their children's well-being because our building was old. Old buildings are especially vulnerable to security breaches. The incident ended quickly, but it got LaMonica and other Catholic school parents thinking, how can these aging buildings be secured? State lawmakers had created a grant program in 2013 to help public schools pay for security upgrades, but it excluded private schools. So the Connecticut Federation of Catholic School Parents began a legislative push to change that, and in 2014, they did it. You know, it's a public safety issue. It's not an education issue. Uh, you wouldn't deny a fire department or a ambulatory service to a church or a, any school, I don't think. The state basically pays for a portion of approved security projects, things like cameras or shatterproof glass. For public schools, the portion they pay depends on the wealth of the municipality. Schools in the poorest cities and towns are refunded at the highest rate, 80%. Many public schools, though, get a lower rate, some as low as 20%. But all private schools are eligible to get the same rate. Half of their costs are reimbursed with state dollars. In February, nearly $10 million in state money went out to schools across Connecticut for security projects. 11 private schools got $1 million of it. But as many as 62 public schools got reimbursed at a lower rate than the private institutions. Jan Hockadell was president of AFT Connecticut, the state's second largest teachers union, She says this shouldn't be happening. Our members have consistently opposed shifting the limited resources from Connecticut's traditional neighborhood schools to the privately run institutions. She says public schools shouldn't have to compete against private schools for money, especially when state resources are shrinking. Every student, every teacher, everybody that works in education should be safe. Um, But I do feel that they can raise funds and that they should be responsible for, you know, increasing their security through their own resources. Hartford Senator John Fonfaro was one of several lawmakers who crafted the 2014 amendment that allowed private schools to access public money. And we felt that it was important to to not discriminate uh, in in terms of a child's life of where their parents choose to have them educated, given the tragedy at Sandy Hook. Bonferro says he doesn't recall exactly why lawmakers gave private schools a flat 50% rate. I don't remember every nuance as to what the rationale was at that time. I'm sure it was given a lot of scrutiny. He suspects it was because there's a lot of information about how public schools are funded, so creating that scale was simple. Wealthy towns get less, poor towns get more. But figuring out a similar scale for private schools would have been more complicated. 
the value judgment was that it was a to base it on a uh, on a number, a percentage that would be objective across the board for private schools. In the recent funding round, a private school in Woodbridge got half of its $400,000 project paid for by the state. But a few miles away in Brantford, a town that's not quite as wealthy as Woodbridge, it's getting refunded by only a third of its costs. Lawmakers seem to be aware that this would happen. In the legislative record, education committee members noted that adding private schools, quote, results in a potential revenue loss to local and regional school districts. The amendment passed with only seven no votes. Jan Hockadell from the Teachers Union says there are many ways private schools can raise money, and most of those methods, like raising student tuition or applying for certain grant programs, aren't available to public schools. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm David DeRoche in Hartford. Coming up, training to guard the border between the U.S. and Canada. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. We've been following stories of New England residents who've made lives here but are now facing deportation. Robert Garova of NHPR found that it's a complex and confusing process for the family of a New Hampshire man who came here as a child. They're looking for answers on where their son will be sent. Agiath Okeni fled war in Sudan with her four children. In Egypt, she says she applied for refugee resettlement. I took my children. I came with them. They asked me an interview. Do you have a specific place to go? I say no, but I just want to live with my kid. I need the safety place to be safe with my children. So they brought me here to Manchester. That was 18 years ago, and she's been in Manchester ever since. In that time, O'Kenny has seen her three daughters off to college. One of them is now training to be an airplane pilot. Another I spoke with is serving in the Peace Corps. O'Kenny also has a son, Hytham Bowl who she says was nine years old when he arrived in the U.S. Haitham was doing very good. He went to high school here. That's Bull's stepfather, Chris O'Kenny, who also came to the States as a refugee from Sudan. He had a job. He played football. He was a couple of times in a newspaper. He was, you know, doing good in a community. But his family says Bull began to run with the wrong crowd. In 2015, Bull pleaded guilty to possession of a controlled drug and receiving stolen property. He was sentenced to serve time in state prison. This past December, O'Kinney says he was released from prison in Berlin. Bull had gotten into a lot of trouble, but he was hoping to start anew. But shortly after getting out of prison, O'Kinney says her son, who does not have U.S. citizenship, was arrested by ICE officials, held at a jail in Dover, and told he would be deported. So I tried to contact to find any help, nowhere to get help. I'm still running to find a way to help my son. O'Kinney says she's been trying to get her son legal help, but has struggled to afford an immigration attorney. 
This became even more difficult when Bol was moved to a different facility halfway across the country. My name is Hayton Bol, and I am in West Texas. I reached Bol at an ice holding facility in Sierra Blanca, Texas. Bol says his voice was scratchy because ice officers used pepper spray on him and others. He also says detainees are resisting deportation. Many of us here, we have old people that really shouldn't deserve this um, treatment or the way they're forcing us. But it's really a a first time I've I've ever witnessed anything like this. It's it's very uh, rough. It's rough. Here's where the story gets more complicated. I was told I'm going to be deported to South Sudan. Bol and other detainees I spoke with on the phone are worried that they will be put on a flight to South Sudan, a country that has been engrossed in war for more than four years. Detainees say ICE officers have verbally given them this information. I have never in my life been to South Sudan. I have no idea what South Sudan looked like. Bol says he was born in Khartoum in the north, during a time when North and South were one country. Since then, South Sudan has gained its independence and is now among the world's most dangerous places, where reports of child soldiers and rape are commonplace and the risk of famine is severe, according to the United Nations. ICE says it does not give out deportation schedules, but provided that, in general, quote, removals of aliens who are under a final order of removal from an immigration judge are done only to the individual's nation of origin, not to third countries. It's difficult to know for sure where ICE plans on deporting Bull or others, or whether or not they will be transported elsewhere after a possible initial landing in South Sudan. Alyssa Steglish is a professor at the University of Texas School of Law. She says concerned family members of individuals in detention with Bol have reached out to her. We remain concerned about access, access to counsel, and conditions in general. Steglish thinks this may be the second attempt to deport dozens of people to unstable countries in Africa. So it certainly raises concerns that um, not only are we pushing ahead with deportations, um, we're doing so in a way uh, that does not respect uh, the dignity and basic human rights of those who are being deported, um, and that is doing so in a way that does not allow for new protection concerns to be heard. Another detainee I talked with said he was originally from Gambia, and lawyers in Minnesota are working to block deportation of a group of Somalis believed to be in the same group. Bol says he's being held with 28 like him, people who he says are worried they too will soon board a flight to South Sudan. Bol's mother, Agyeth Okini, who is now in contact with a lawyer, says she's left in the dark and worried her son will be sent to a highly dangerous country he has no connection to. No home. No safety. My big problem is no safety. Where they're taking them? And I ask, where is my son? Where is going? Nobody tell me. Husband Chris O'Kenny says he feels like he and his family, who came here legally as refugees, are being treated unfairly. This is not America that I know. All of us here, uh, we came. We did our best. We became part of the community. We, we got to work. We pay our taxes. And we should have a right the same way other people in in America. He's fearing for his life. We fear for his life. Immigration experts I spoke with say the deportation process isn't exactly transparent and extremely difficult to fight without good legal help. So for now, Okini waits for the next phone call from her son, hoping he will have more information for her. No one listening to me. I feel now like I'm still in Sudan. 
because they say I'm an American citizen. So we have a right to say something and somebody can listen. Okini says she understands her son has broken the law and may be deported to South Sudan or elsewhere. But she wants people to know her story in the hopes that it will save others from the same fear and frustration. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robert Garova. With President Trump's increased focus on immigration enforcement, more families are facing the kinds of questions that Robert just explored. But the stakes are also higher than ever for Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, officers. These are the people working at official ports of entry, and they decide who enters the country and who doesn't. But that broad authority has some civil rights advocates raising concerns. WBUR's Shannon Dooling recently left New England to visit the federal training center that houses the academy for the CBP. Who are we? CBP! We are sheep dogs protecting the law from the wall! At the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Brunswick, Georgia, a group of 14 trainees just four days into the Officer Academy are wearing dark blue uniforms and carrying heavy backpacks. These hopefuls are training to become CBP officers. You may have handed an officer your passport at the airport or when you crossed the U.S.-Canada border. The curriculum for a CBP officer is broad, from constitutional law and computer training to firearms training and tactical role play. But as Branch Chief Nick Sunderhouse says, the focus is always on security. Because at the end of the day, yes, we're facilitating travel and trade, but we have people that want to harm us and have ill will. Since November 2016, getting into the training academy may have gotten a little easier. Some specially qualified applicants no longer need to take the entrance exam, and CBP is accepting older applicants. President Trump has not mandated a hike in hiring for CBP officers, like he did with border agents. But Sunderhouse says there's been a bump in candidates coming through the academy, and morale is good. CBP is hiring. The morale here from the trainees coming in, um, we see that because they got a job that they applied for that they wanted to do. For 26-year-old Patrick Provost of North Kingstown, Rhode Island, becoming a CBP officer is all about job security. At the time, I was applying to almost every opening I could find on USA Jobs. Steady income with good benefits. I do have a criminal justice degree, so I'm always trying to look for the next step. And after graduating, the next step for provost is up to Norton, Vermont, where he's been assigned to a border crossing in one of the most remote regions of New England. It's there that his CBP training will be put to the test. The job of a CBP officer is quite different than their counterparts, border patrol agents who roam the places along the border in between the official ports of entry. There are more CBP officers in the force than there are agents. And according to CBP statistics, officers at ports of entry seize far larger amounts of drugs like opioids than border agents. And officers also arrest more wanted criminals at ports of entry. As Sunderhouse explains, that could be because officers have a whole lot of data at their disposal. There's so much information that we're able to utilize in our systems that allow the officer to make a really good assessment when they see people coming at them to be able to say, that person's going there, this person's going there. 
While CBP policy prohibits racial profiling, officers do have the authority at ports of entry to look beyond the computer systems, using what's called their border search authority to take other factors into account. Things you're wearing, how your mannerisms are, all those things can still come into play, and then that would fall under border search. How often that happens, there's no quantitative number. That's because these interactions aren't always documented. It's not kept track of because sometimes I might get that intuitive speak and nothing comes out of it. Or I, I looked and I didn't find anything. It's not saying I, I might not get them next time, but only if there's an apprehension, a seizure, would that data be collected. In other words, an officer may decide to follow a gut instinct and ask additional questions. If that hunch comes up empty, then Sunderhouse says it's not necessarily kept track of. And for some civil rights advocates, that presents a problem. Carol Rose heads up the ACLU of Massachusetts. The problem here is that officers bring their own subjective bias to the situation. And if they're not actually measuring their success rate, there's no way to actually judge or to know whether their training is working or not. This is part of what's at question in a case filed in Boston federal court by the ACLU of Massachusetts and others. They're challenging a growing practice of searching travelers' electronic devices without a warrant. In fact, CBP's searches of electronic devices have nearly tripled since 2015. CBP, though, says these searches still only impact a fraction of the traveling public. The plaintiffs in the lawsuit are 10 U.S. citizens and one lawful permanent resident, several of them Muslims or people of color, whose smartphones and laptops were searched at the U.S. border without warrants. These people were subsequently not accused of any wrongdoing. So we do have instances of when people are wrongfully uh, stopped, wrongfully questioned, and in this instance, having their uh, cell phones and their laptops confiscated and viewed and kept for weeks or months. Oral arguments in the Massachusetts court case begin in late April. Back at the facility in Georgia, officers are training with real-world scenarios. Dozens of role players are waiting in lines, just like you'd see at an airport customs checkpoint. They're each playing different characters, different travelers that a CBP officer is likely to encounter. Some may take on the role of refugee. Others could be hiding something sinister. The actors have detailed instructions, like to smile and flirt with the trainee, or their script may call for them to avoid eye contact, bite their nails, and appear to be nervous, like in this case. All right, Mr. Madison, if you step aside from me one second, someone's going to come in and escort you to secondary. They're going to ask you some more questions. I will take it from there, okay? Thank you very much. A CBP trainer cracks a grin of approval. The officer in training successfully sidelined a would-be smuggler. Next passenger. Good afternoon, ma'am. How are you? Can I see your passport? For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling. We are right in the middle of New England's maple syrup season. In Vermont, about 3,000 producers are on their annual race to produce a commodity worth upwards of $300 million each year. After two banner years, Vermont producers and processors are trying to walk a fine line between price and production. Production's rising thanks to ever more efficient technology, and that's putting downward pressure on prices. 
But that's not scaring off out-of-state investors who are expanding their businesses to satisfy the rising demand for syrup worldwide. Lauren Matalon reports. The wind feels like a chilly blanket, and the snow is knee-deep. Paul Lambert is checking his taps in Randolph Center. Everybody's adding taps, adding trees, new sugar makers, new investors. So there's a lot of syrup being produced. Demands rising domestically and abroad in Asia, Europe, and the UK. Henry Marcris was the Vermont Agency of Agriculture's maple specialist for 34 years before his recent retirement. He's still a go-to source for producers. Again, we're seeing huge increases in production both in Quebec and in Vermont. Quebec and Vermont are by far the two largest syrup-making regions in a narrow geographic section of North America, the only place in the world where the syrup's made. Where that's going to level off, I'm not sure. I do think there has to be a point of reducing some of the expansion to maintain a good price, but we haven't seen it yet. Which is why out-of-state money's flowing into Vermont maple. Bob Sabolevsky is a traditional small-batch producer in Stowe. It used to be this thing that... These guys down the back roads, they're the only ones who knew how to get the sap, you know. And then the technology came into it and spread out the season, and all of a sudden you can take a run at it, you know, make money off of it. New York-based Crown Maple started working 4,400 acres near Manchester Center in 2016. In Marshfield, another New York company, the Forest Farmers, bought 2,400 acres last summer and plans to have 130,000 taps in place in three years. The company's financed by two private equity partners from Massachusetts. Mike Farrell's the CEO. Uh, We can make up to about 200 gallons of syrup per hour. Farrell's the author of The Sugar Maker's Companion, a guide to innovative technology and marketing. Farrell formerly led Cornell University's Forest Maple Research Center for 12 years. He's bullish on the long-term market, but does have short-term concerns. You know, we started this venture about three years ago, and bulk prices were acceptable. Then the price for bulk maple syrup, the price paid to producers, Covered around 230 to 240 per pound, in some cases more. And they've done nothing but come down since. It's now around $2 a pound. And I think if bulk prices were the level they were today, three years ago, I'm not sure that we would have invested so much into the larger scale production. Sweet Tree Holdings, in this processing plant in Island Pond, is another example of large scale investment in Vermont. It arrived in 2015. It has 500,000 taps with plans for one and a half million within five years. Sweet Tree's story shows how maple syrups become a commodity, like oil or metals. It came to Vermont as a subsidiary of an investment arm of Mass Mutual Life Insurance. In mid-January, Mass Mutual sold Sweet Tree to a private equity firm in Montreal called Fiera Comox. Sweet Tree's Joe Russo runs the Island Pond operation, and he says Fiera Comox wants to triple production. It's very, very, very simple. The upside is absolutely gargantuan. If that's the case, why would Mass Mutual sell? Russo wouldn't discuss that. One of the world's top processors is Butternut Mountain Farm in Morrisville. It buys from producers, then brands the syrup for big-volume customers like Whole Foods and Walmart. Here's Butternut CEO John Kingston. Like most commodity markets, it will attract people at higher prices, and they will tend to retreat during lower prices. So I think we'll see that pattern continue as it does for for most commodity items. The arrival of so-called Big Maple concerns some Vermonters. 
A bill before the Vermont House is asking for a review of sugaring operations with 100,000 taps or more. There's a little bit of fear of the unknown there. That's Matt Gordon with the Vermont Maple Sugar Makers Association. A large operation years ago might have had 10,000 taps, and now that we're talking about 100,000 taps or more, it's complete sea change for the industry just in terms of scale. But Gordon says many of the association's members are already large-scale. Just by virtue of being large, having a lot of taps, uh, producing a lot of syrup, they're not necessarily harming their neighbors. Demand for maple syrup and maple products is growing by about 6 to 8% per year. And the prospect of that kind of return is drawing in investors like moths to a flame. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lorne Madelon. Coming up, defining a new culture for New England. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Back in 2015, Take Magazine started as an attempt to catalog New England's new culture. That meant a step beyond the very traditional cultural icons like lighthouses, lobsters, pilgrims, and autumn leaves to explore a vibrant and diverse arts scene. Profiles of visual artists, choreographers, musicians, and chefs were illustrated with beautiful big-format photography and slick graphics. But sadly, this bi-monthly fell victim to some of the same financial problems that face many of the arts organizations they covered, and they closed up shop after the February-March issue hit the stand. But publisher Michael Cusack says he learned a lot about the arts in New England and the challenges of spreading the word. He joined us just as the last issue was being readied, and I asked him to start with what he meant by New England's new culture. Not lobster traps, <laughs> not covered bridges, not maple syrup. Not that there's anything wrong with those three things, but uh, when I conceived of take initially, it came out of my experiences working as a communications person and a publicist uh, who worked frequently in the arts and found a tough uphill battle sometimes to get PR um, for artists doing work um, in New England. Um, but also just this idea of what it means to be a New Englander. You know, when you talk to people about what is New England, they think of it as, you know, pilgrims and the Red Sox and... Um, all of these very, very common images, but there's so much more happening out there, and that's what we set out to look for. Well, why do you think that that persists here in a way that perhaps other parts of the country have been able to to outgrow? I mean, I, you look at a place like Texas, and us New Englanders may think of cowboy boots and cowboy hats and rodeos and hoedowns, but you go to Texas— and they're selling it as as tech, and they're selling it as a place where an awful lot of people from around the world come. What do you think holds us back and, and makes us hold on to those old traditions? You know, it's, you know, we're imbued. Our surroundings are imbued with it. I remember having a friend visit from Colorado, and she was amazed that there were buildings that were built in the, you know, 1700s here. Um, I think it's something that we're very proud of our history. Um, but certainly, I think when we're... When we're putting a face out to people, um, often our tourism committees and our tourism boards sort of say, 
you know, come here for Plymouth Rock and come here for, you know, the tall masted sailing ships. And we really ride on our history um, to attract people here. And I think sometimes at the detriment of really promoting reasons to relocate to New England to move here. Does it hold us back culturally, do you think, this attachment to history? I think we certainly saw people who built on it. You know, uh, we had covered a, a great photographer who was working up in Maine. You know, he was photographing on the shoreline of Maine. And, and his work came out of a rich tradition of seafaring in Maine. But he brought sort of a modern angle to it. So I think it can certainly in imbue and inform us. But I think also we run a risk of being – you always run a risk of being saddled with your history, I think. And I think one of the things that maybe gets saddled with that history is, is if you think about us as the pilgrims and you think about us in colonial times, you think about a, a power structure that is very white. It's very Eurocentric. It's very patriarchal, um, maybe very Puritan. All things that aren't really a part – of modern artistic movements uh, here in New England or or anywhere else in the world. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that, about that that shift from being a place that holds on to a history that looks a certain way to a place that actually looks a different way and, and has to express itself to the outer world. You know, in our early days of putting take together, we had a commitment as uh, as a team to reflect diversity in New England. In each issue, there had to be somebody from all one of each of the six states in New England. And so that was kind of our first diversity. And then we looked for a diversity of areas in which people were working. So it could be food, it could be dance, it could be music, and, and to find a good mix of that. And then also, which was very important to us, was a diversity in where these people were from in terms of origin. And... You're looking for contemporary artists in New Hampshire, but you're looking for contemporary artists maybe of color in New Hampshire. It's a, it's a challenge. And then when you start to find what's out there, you find immigrant communities across New England that are b- bringing amazing amounts of culture to the community that aren't getting their due on a regular basis necessarily because, you know, large Cambodian communities don't necessarily mesh with that pilgrim sort of identity of New England. There is a large Russian community in Western Massachusetts. Like what kind of work is coming out of those communities? What creativity are they bringing to their world in their community? Shakes all of that up. I've heard about uh, this problem from people in the visual arts world, from people certainly in the music scenes around New England, that there's a certain type of uh, provincialism even within New England that means that if you are part of that small group of New Hampshire painters of color that you wouldn't necessarily mix with the people from a similar group in nearby Maine, that that we try to keep to ourselves in our towns, our cities, even our counties in a way that doesn't allow this place to cohere. Is that something you noticed as you were as you were building the magazine? I am both guilty of it as a person (laughs) (laughs) um, and try to kind of put a finger in the eye of as a publisher of a magazine. You know, I live in downtown Northampton and I will have a friend call me and ask me if I'm going to that thing in Amherst, which is eight miles away, and I will whine that it is all the way over there. 
because I have to cross a body. I have to cross a body of water to get there, which is the Connecticut River. God forbid. I know. It's terrible. So there is this parochial quality to New Englanders, but also you can get up at a reasonable time in the morning and be at the other end of New England in time for lunch, no matter where you're located. And so we are this wonderfully compact area that allows for that kind of intermingling. But I think we also have, um, we silo ourselves in our institutions and our communities quite well here. In some of our early issues, we wrote about a boutique hotel in Providence called the the Dean Hotel, which, you know, people in Western Massachusetts were like, I had never heard of that. I had no idea that would be there. I'm going to go to Providence for a weekend. What are some of the elements you found that make for cities or regions in New England that are artistically vibrant with with contemporary artists? I mean, you mentioned Providence. One of the reasons Providence is able to to have uh, an art hotel surrounded by interesting things is there's a lot of colleges there, including mm-hmm. one of, uh, if not the best design school in the entire country. Is that what it takes to to have colleges around, or is there some other magic that you found in some of the towns? When we first started, and we were looking at maps of New England and where we wanted to do some coverage, one of the things we would say is, go to that town, find the old mill, and the old mill will be filled with cool people. All of these um, old New England mills that pepper small towns and big cities throughout the region in many cases are repurposing and converting to incubator spaces, studio spaces, live-work lofts. When New England cities were built, they were built around their mills. So these mill buildings sit at the center often of communities. And if you can fill those buildings with life and with you know, new, new products and energy and enthusiasm, there should be some ripple effect outside of that building. Because by the time we were building these factories in the Midwest, we were putting them on the edge of town. And, you know, and they're not necessarily in the centers of our towns. And I think there's something unique about that in New England. You know, our, um, our offices for the magazine are located in downtown Holyoke. And There is a mayor now in Holyoke, Mass., who is really committed to creative economies, uh, using the creative economy to bring um, new life to parts of the city that did not have businesses. And so our office is in an old mill building in downtown Holyoke. And the street that it's on, all of the buildings are converting into this kind of loft space. It's interesting, too, a, a place like Holyoke, it's, it's small enough, even though it's been a population center for, for centuries, it's small enough that it's never going to be dragged into this kind of greater Boston megaplex in which it becomes so expensive to live and it becomes so gentrified that the artists and the creative people can't live there. Is that part of what the magic is, too? I mean, outside of greater Boston, which has gotten so incredibly Mm. expensive, the rest of New England is filled with these tiny places with really good bones and and the possibility of creating a unique artistic community in large part just because you can kind of afford to live there. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we tried to do at the magazine was say there is a creative community here if you're a young person. You know, we have all of these colleges and universities here, and, and one of the biggest complaints by economic development people is, is that we have a brain drain. We educate all of these incredibly smart, talented young people, and then they go elsewhere across the country to 
invent or make a living or create a family or do all of those things. But what you also have is you have people leaving big cities and coming to a quality of life across New England to make their work. And also because it's less expensive. You know, there is that opportunity there. And that's one of the things that we try to highlight in our editorial over the last couple of years is this is all of the cool stuff that's happening in New England. Like if you want to do it here, you can do it. And there may be somebody who's doing something like you or you may be a unicorn and the only one doing it. But if you want to do it, you can you can make it happen here. Speaking of unicorns, <laughs> there aren't a lot of high production value, uh, very well produced, photographed, edited arts magazines that are launched in the mid-2010s that frankly survive very long. So before I, I ask you about the end of Take Magazine as we know it, what what led you to think that you could start an art magazine like this <laughs> in the first I'm place? completely crazy. <laughs> A couple things. Um, I got, as they say, ink in my blood. I used to work for the, the Advocate newspapers. I used to work for the Valley Advocate um, and did some work coming down here to the Hartford Advocate in my day. And that's where I really fell in love with publishing. What really spurred me on is there is um, a boom in independent magazine publishing around the world. You have titles like Monocle and Kinfolk and Apartamento, high production value magazines that were finding a, a niche audience in print and online. Um, they were covering something that just other people weren't covering. And from my time as a communications person, um, I know, knew how siloed the media can be in New England, mm -hmm. that getting living in Western Mass and getting coverage from the globe is virtually impossible. And, um, you know, getting coverage in Springfield for a Northampton event is sometimes tough. But artists are agnostic about borders and need audiences from all over. And artists want to work and know what people are doing. And so we decided our neighborhood was going to be New England. Uh, I managed to raise some money um, privately from a group of people to get take started. Didn't raise all of the money that we needed, um, but we decided to start publishing. Didn't have enough staff around sales, and that really sort of kneecapped us. And so we stopped. And then um, uh, uh, Stacy Kors became my business partner uh, last year. Um, and that allowed us to sort of add the sales staff that we need. And we went out there. And to a certain degree, we were more successful with print. Um, but one of the things that really sort of um, got us this time is the major shift in digital advertising that about 70% of the money spent in this country on digital advertising goes to Facebook and Google. And so once we sort of took that out of our budget, that really kind of killed us the second time around. Um, so what made us think we could do it? Uh, you know, I think there's an audience out there for it. Certainly, you know, our web traffic went from 3,000 readers a month to almost 35,000 in about a year. Mm. So people were discovering our content if we had the advertisers, we could have been a weekly with the number of stories that we had. Um, you know, we did get up. We were building a subscriber base. Um, but again, some of the things just didn't happen as quickly as they needed to. I've often wondered if the movement toward monetizing the arts and celebrating the arts as a way to create jobs 
is in some ways a detriment to the idea of of art for art's sake. And you've been on both sides of this mm. business. So I, I'm wondering how you feel about that, about the the notion that as soon as we put a dollar value on something and say, the good thing about this new art space is that it will bring in this many jobs and this much uh, to the economy and this much in tax revenue, that there's something inherently that we're missing about the value of just doing it in the first place. Well, I think even before you have to get to that place, I think where you have to get is is understanding that people make their living as artists. And, and, and I think we haven't even quite gotten over that hurdle because often you hear a mayor you – know, I live in Northampton and I've, had a, I've lived under a succession of mayors who've t- touted you know, our arts community as a reason for tourism. But you know, it's, it's, it's kind of awkward in a sense because you wouldn't tout all of the dentists as a reason for tourism. I mean <laughs> you, know, you, have to, you have to get to a place where – you know, these artists, this is how they make their living. We haven't sort of accepted that fact to then move on to this place where there, there is this economic impact that artists have, that choreographing a dance is economic development baffles some people. But it does. It brings in audiences. It provides a living for somebody. Um, uh, hopefully, it can provide a good living for somebody who can they can then have a, a a life beyond just making their art that they can afford. What are you hearing from your readers uh, about the magazine going away? Uh, sad. You know, people thought we gave it a good shot. One of the nicest things anybody said to me is, I had coffee with an old friend who is in town, and she said, "All of you at Take planted a whole bunch of seeds." that you don't even know about. I hope to continue to travel around New England and see if some of those seeds have bloomed when I least expect it. So, Mike, thanks so much for speaking with us. I really appreciate it. And, and congratulations on whatever new success you will have. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Take may not be in print anymore, but the archive of articles is still available at thetakemagazine.com. Good luck to Michael and his team. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwabstone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.